Welcome to Noclip. The podcast is like a book club for people who don't think that books reward them enough for being good at them. I'm Andy Kinnick, and today I'll be joined by special guests Daniel Otten. Happy to be back. And Janelle Vickers. Likewise. And today we're going to be talking about Dragon Age Origins. Finally. Finally! Um, <laughs> it goes to show that the squeaky wheel who bugs her friends enough gets them to play Dragon Age Origins. <laughs> like how they did uh, Time Splitters on the podcast. If you ask often enough, eventually they will reward you. You must be the squeakier wheel. <laughs> Maybe if you're good, uh, Santa will bring it to you for Christmas. <laughs> uh, but anyway, um, uh, but first, if you could give us a like or a rating, uh, it would be greatly appreciated. Uh, but with all of that out of the way, uh, Dragon Age Origins was developed by Bioware, published by Electronic Arts, and released in 2009 for Windows, Xbox 360, PlayStation 3, and Mac OS. And so Dragon Age Origins is a... CRPG, but one that was released, I think, at like a really pivotal time in the, uh, especially the AAA games industry, where it feels like they tried to modernize it a lot. So it kind of sits at this interesting middle point where it tries to be a little bit more cinematic, but it's also one of those last games that really held on to that old style of like D&D influenced uh, design that you saw in the 90s. Yeah, and we... I think we talked about this on our Divinity cast, but like the Dragon Age was like the first step, I think, towards a lot of like modern action RPGs. Um, although, I mean, I, it depends. Sometimes when you say action RPG, you mean like Diablo and Diablo clones. Other times, I think mm-hmm. it means more. So, when I say I use action RPG in this context to mean like Skyrim, Dragon Age, those types of games, The Witcher, right? And um, not like Kingdom Hearts or something, right? And uh, it was it was kind of the first step down that path, but it like still retained a lot of the DNA of like Baldur's Gate and Neverwinter Nights, um, which I remember being like kind of surprised by how much of that was still in there when I played this for the first time. I don't think it's that surprising if you think that Bioware also did Knights of the Old Republic, which is also even more so a a D and D esque game and that came before this yes right? yeah yeah so i think you can really see the progression if you consider a timeline of Baldur's gate neverwinter's night kotor dragon age because they they went further with a lot more of the um the cinematic parts of it whereas knights of the old republic feels a little bare bones as far as like what bioware is now known for with the party interactions and development, uh, character development along those lines. And there were a lot more um, just straight D&D style saves and checks that I think are more hidden in Dragon Age Origins. That's true, because in, in Knights, you will do something and it will it, it will say, like, Wisdom, and you rolled a 12 and right. you failed. Like, there is none of that in Dragon Age. Right. So it's a bit less immersive but a lot more like D. &D. (laughs) yeah like um in neverwinter nights you have that constant little uh text box at the bottom that's showing all the roles for like everything you do and dragon age tries to i think maybe modernize isn't the right word but try to make it more palatable to your average person uh it, it disguises a lot of that stuff yeah which i think like 
a lot of people feel very strongly about how much Bioware and Inquisition and in Dragon Age 2 even like moved away from their their more like traditional model. I don't think that's well, and for some people, that stuff is like a big part of what they miss. I don't think, like, from a design philosophy perspective, I share that opinion. Like, I don't think much is lost in in Origins when a lot of that stuff happens under the hood, as opposed to like seeing it. Because even as somebody who plays tabletop role playing games regularly and loves them, and loves Baldur's Gate and Neverwinter Nights. The combat log is not what I like about <laughs> Neverwinter Nights. I don't like, I never even look to see, like, oh, I rolled a 17. Oh, I try to, but then the 17 bats in the room also have their roles displayed. Right. It just, it runs by so fast. Yeah, and all the it, other yeah, it people goes by playing with comically fast. Yeah, so I'm squinting, trying to say, like, did I, did I save? Did I, no, wait, what, what was my role? And then I'm already dead because the 17 bats decided to eat me specifically. So, um, but, but it still has that sort of party dynamic, uh, pass fail rate that I think is appealing, but it kind of hides, t- tucks away the, uh, numbers under the hood in a way that I think makes it more sleek and sort of appealing for a user's eye. Yeah, I would agree as well. Like, I think those old games try to simulate the mechanics of D a lot so like there's almost yeah like a simulation element of like oh it's like you're really rolling the dice um but it's happening like in real time or whatever uh but i think a clever thing at least i know i like this better that bioware did with this is it tries to emulate a different part of D, which i think janelle was just kind of getting at which is the party right it makes the other characters feel more like real people that you have relationships with. And I think that's probably the thing that's kept them relevant uh, over the years. Like, I think that's the thing that people really connect with, especially the romances. Yeah, they do party relationships quite well. I I mean, I think that they have, you're right that they've made that like a centerpiece of their games. And you see it in Mass Effect too. Like, I think that that's probably the strongest. There's lots of great things about Mass Effect, but I think like, the party characters and the relationships that the player has with those characters are probably the strongest parts of the game. Um, I mean, that's the whole crux of Mass Effect 2, which is arguably, but many consider to be the best in the trilogy. It's basically just, you're woken from cryogenic plastic surgery sleep, and now you have to go recruit and make friends with, like, ten people. And then it's the finale. Like, the whole game right. is just building relationships and helping people. And I think that for some people, where the the plot drives their desire to play a video game, two falls flat for that reason. But it's what I enjoy about Bioware games and Origins in Mass Effect 2, for example, um, is the building of the party dynamic and the the simulated friendships you can have <laughs> in the uh, the electronic space. <laughs> what do, do yeah, we want? Go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say, um, I when I went to capture gameplay footage for this, I, I, I it illuminated that even more for me because I sat down to record it and like over half of it is just me talking to people, and I'm like, oh, I hope this isn't going to be boring to watch <laughs> <laughs> uh, to anybody that does that. Um, 
but yeah, I was like, it it really carries a lot of weight in this game, and it's something you don't think about un- unless you're in a situation like me where it's highlighted for you. Yeah, there is a lot of like the depth. There's a depth and like richness to just the amount of like interaction you can have, especially with the party members. That I think you could like a regional person could go either way on. I mean, it's a big part of what I like a lot about this game, and probably even more, I would imagine, for you. But like, if you don't like sitting and talking to characters, like I imagine Chad would, his I he mean, would just go blind trying to play. There's a reason why he's not on this episode, <laughs> and it's because he would have gone. He, he he would just say no, thank you. Spare my eyeballs. I'm not even going to make an attempt to play this fucking game. Right. <laughs> but uh, but I mean, it, it says something like there are NPCs, like not even your party members, that stand out in your mind. For example, uh, what's his name? Gorham? Oh, yeah, Gorham. Love Gorham. But yeah, but like, that's a guy that you met in the beginning of your origin, didn't see him, got a letter from him, and then met him up up with him again in Denerum, like, near the end of the game. And yet... Right. You love that guy. That's your guy. Yeah, I think it's like... it's a, there, This is a broader topic, but, like, the... And it's connected to the origin system, which I'm sure we'll turn to soon, but mm-hmm. one neat thing this game does is it just, like, builds in meaningful moments that you may or may not experience, depending on either, like, your character choices or, like, choices you made through the game. Because if you're the dwarf noble origin, like, Gorham is your best friend who was the only person who stuck by you when you were wrongly accused of killing your own brother. And is, like, also banished from dwarven society. And, like, you meet him again in Denerum and, like, catch up with him. And it's, like, a cool... And and depending on how you play the game, like, when you're in Denerum, you're kind of near the end of the game. And so it feels like a lot has happened to your character since then. Um, And I found that to be a really, like, a cool and meaningful moment. But if you are not a dwarf noble origin, like, Gorham is just the guy that yells dwarven crafts. Just direct, <laughs> direct from Orzammar. Yeah. Like, That's the reason he's my favorite character. <laughs> it was a cool way to build in, um, in a way that felt earned, a kind of sense of, like, these are real people living in the world. Like, even somebody who's just, like, a merchant on the street has a story. Right. Um... And I, I, I did really like that. Well, that's and it's the same with any origin. For example, if you're in the Dalish origin, you're you meet Meryl, who is a party member in two. If you're in the alienage, elf alienage origin, you run into some of the other elves at the end game in the battle for Denerum. It's the first time you're like, Oh, my bros but for any other origin it's hey, some elves who wanna help out. So it, it is an interesting, and especially if you're someone like me who will replay the game, there are characters who show up throughout the story that either have a complex backstory in relationship with your warden or are nobody to your warden and how you handle that person. For example, Jowen. Right. The mage who you encounter in the dungeons at uh, Redcliffe. If you are a mage, you... You already know that he's a shithead. You already know that he's a shithead, (laughs) but you might feel like a kinship with him or still some sort of friendship if you're... For the record, I didn't when I was playing as a mage. I was like, Jowen, you moron. (laughs) Like, why do you keep getting yourself in trouble? You're going to stay in this cage. 
until I figure out what to do with you. Right. But, you know, so when you're role-playing, and again, this will go into sort of our discussion of role-playing and the backstories that are created, but when you're role-playing these interactions with these NPC characters, whether you have a pre-established relationship with them or not, like, really can determine the way that you handle conversations or influence their kind of interaction with you as you move through the world, which I think is really interesting. And it does help feed into your ability to roleplay in the space. Yeah, it does feel really organic. And um, as you mentioned, the, the character that ends up in your party in the second game uh, you also can meet Cullen in this, in the Mage's Tower, who's a big part of Inquisition. So it, it does, it makes it the world feel real. And like any character that's just around could be somebody important, even though they probably aren't. It just gives that implication, which it does make the world feel more alive. But um, we keep brushing up against it, but you want to talk about the origins, which... Uh, what gives I the mean, game? I mean, come on. Hell yeah. Drink. Um, I remember when this game came out, I wanted it very badly, but did not have like a computer that could run it. Um, and I don't think I had a 360 at the time. But I remember the Origins being the part of the game that like blew me away in terms of like, this is going to be like something I never played before. Um. And I have to say, because I didn't play it until... I played Inquisition uh, before I played Origins, like a fool. A um, great fool. For reasons we don't need to get into, but like having come back to Origins many years after its release, it, it's astounding to me how much, how much depth there is to the Origins, and how much basically no other game I'm aware of has managed to like replicate that success. Like, I, they deserve so much credit for that. It, it's a cool idea. It is implemented in a way that is not at all superficial. It's not just, like, the tutorial and then you forget all about it. It, like, informs the whole arc of the story. And um, Cyberpunk purported to do something similar just as, like, a contemporary example. And having not played it, I can't. I guess I can't say for sure, but I know I have heard a lot of people complain about the fact that there are three origins in the game and outside of the first ten minutes or so, they hardly have an impact. So, like, it's no no small feat to have implemented that in 2009, because uh, it's still hard to do now, 11 years. Now, how know, many later. origins did you start, or at least do the beginning of? I've done the Mage origin, the Dalish origin, and the Dwarf origin. And Andrew, you? I've just done the Human Noble and the, um, um, one of the Elven ones, what is it? Uh, Dalish. Dalish, yeah, that's it. So we have all of our bases covered except for the uh, dwarf, dwarf commoner. commoner, which is also a really interesting origin. I just haven't gotten around to it yeah, yet. Yeah, it's probably awesome given how awesome the dwarf noble one is. <laughs> I mean, obviously we know which origin Daniel is shilling for out of the three he's played. I just want to give a quick pitch for the dwarf noble origin, because, like, they're all good in their own way, but you get to do so much cool shit at the beginning of the dwarf noble one, like, you actually get treated like a member of the nobility. Like, you can choose to be kind of, like, a cool dude or be super shitty to people. Like, you can order people to be killed that you don't like. You get to have sex with uh, 
the, the couple dwarf ladies. It's just like, I was impressed when I played through it at how much depth there was to like, you are a member of like the noble house and get to behave as such. And it, I, that really makes the fall from grace land. And of all the origins I played, that the shift from like, wherever you started to now you're going to be a gray warden felt like the most momentous. It was like, this is like a total change in this character's like conception of themselves and their life plans. Like they were going to be eventually the king of Orzammar, um, potentially. And instead they're like joining this organization they've never heard of and to maybe go die. So dwarf, I know dwarfs are off in the punching bag of fantasy games. <laughs> um, and we'll probably talk about this later. Dragon Age keeps a lot of the tropes, but I think realizes dwarves in a in a much more authentic way than a lot of fantasy games do. So, dwarf noble origin. If you haven't tried it, yeah, I might be talking up my ass here, and Janelle could probably tell me if that's the case or not. But um, I think if you pick a default world state in Inquisition, that dwarf noble is the canon origin. So there are three default states that you can pick from basically dependent upon major sort of character arc choices which spoiler alert one of them is whether or not the warden made the ultimate sacrifice or not Mm -hmm. so one of them i think is human noble one of them is dalish and i think one of them is dwarf noble and they all kind of have different major plot points that would affect the game in Inquisition that you can kind of pick from. I know the Dalish one is the ultimate sacrifice one. Um, and I think Dwarf Noble is a bit more of the uh, cynical <laughs> Origins playthrough or the, the, the less Paragon-sided one, but I do think that is one of the default states. Mm-hmm. I, just, I saw a video that somebody posted of, uh, it's, was it Varric who mm-hmm. writes the stories? Yeah, mm-hmm. just like telling the story of the original game, and that was the origin he told. So. Yeah, um, I mean that that's part part of the what is interesting about Origins being what is now the first in a series of of games is that the warden is so complex depending on how you play it with the choices that you made. It really is like a tapestry of choices that you can go down that makes your individual warden very unique compared to other people's. Um, And it's part of why after Origins, even if your warden survives the end of the game, they've not appeared in person in another Dragon Age game. Because, again, you pick a default state if you've not played Origins to load your warden sort of into the game and their choices, which would affect the world state. Because you couldn't just bring back a generic dwarf guy and be like hello i'm the warden because everyone who picked, people would riot yeah because everyone who like me i'm like the warden is an alienage elf woman and here's here's my reasoning for thinking that the alienage origin is the best origin because not only is it one of the six origin states it actually has two divergent gameplay within the origin itself whether you're playing as a male or a female because either way, alienage women get kidnapped by by the noble cast in uh, in Denerim. And so what, if you're a male elf, you have to fight into and break out the women. And if you're a female elf, you have to fight your way out. 
Um, and I think that's a really interesting sort of dichotomy as far as the agency factor. In either way, you, you are the agent of trying to solve your community's problems. And I also just think it makes it really interesting and complex as a character from a clearly denigrated class now having to move through society as someone with ostensibly the power to save the world. And also, people still don't give a shit about you. It's like, what kind of a chip on that shoulder does it give you? Does it make you want to help others? Does it make you feel jaded? Are you happy that you joined the Wardens? Are you pissed that you got conscripted because you tried to fight the law and Duncan stole you away? You know, what do you think about Duncan? What do you guys think about Duncan? <laughs> I was just going to ask you that. He's kind of he's kind of a cool dad until you think about like the stuff he does. <laughs> like he, he's kind of a not a good dude. Cuz he just I like I really like Duncan. I think it's one of the thing he's one of the things that really establishes the tone of the game that like really grabs you early on is that he's like a really effective subversion of a mentor character. Uh, he comes off like super as you said cool dad. Uh, he welcomes you in and he makes you feel like things will be okay if he's around. And then he knifes it. <laughs> yeah. Then, yeah. You play the, he kills you somebody. The, yeah. You do the adjoining and then he just murders a guy in cold blood. You're like, uh, what the fuck well, am I really, getting into? Yeah. So it's, I think that sort of thing can feel cliche if not done well, but I think it, it, it pulls it off really well. And it's one of the most memorable parts of the game. Yeah, I agree with that, and I think that Duncan's death is effective in the storytelling as well, because, I mean, it, it is a classic trope to, like, take away a father figure, but I think the game does it pretty effectively, and especially communicates that well through the character of Alistair. After Ostiar, Alistair is like, what the hell do we do now? Like, there, there's no hope. Like, our leadership is gone. Well, and, like, and it's easy to forget that he's, I think, 18 at the time of the play. Oh, really? Like, he's a kid. I mean, he's an idiot kid, but he's a kid. But it does feel the, the like, weight and, like, size of what you're supposed to accomplish after Ostigar, I think is communicated pretty effectively through, especially through Duncan being killed. And all the Wardens. Right. We, don't, we don't really get to meet a lot of the Wardens. They're a pretty small bunch, but what they were wiped off the map, except for Alistair, the 18-year-old golden retriever idiot. Right. And you, who just learned that you drank Darkspawn blood, and also that you might get stabbed in any minute. Yeah, and I think Alistair reinforces it as well, because he's been that He's like your senior in the Grey Wardens, but as soon as everyone's dead, he immediately looks to you, like pushes off the responsibility. Right. And I think that also reinforces it really effectively, even if you don't quite realize it, because it doesn't spell it out to you. He just defers to you. And you're probably used to that being someone playing a video game protagonist. Yeah, and Morgan even, like, comments on it. And it's a nice bit of characterization for Alistair, too, because, like, you, the you the player, get to, like, shape kind of what he ends up doing and being. Early on in the game, he is not fit to lead anyone. And he basically tells you that <laughs> by being like, well, you just joined, like, yesterday, but I don't 
I don't want to be in charge, so like I'm gonna follow you. Um, mm-hmm. So like he can and he can end up having like a really nice arc where like he grows into becoming a leader, or he could like have a really tragic arc, which it's one another strong suit of the the storytelling via the party members that we talked about. That there's a lot of different avenues that you could take Alistair's character, and and you the player get to like shape that. Oh well, if we're talking about party members, give me a lightning round. <laughs> of like two like okay so you get do you get two or three party members you get three, three. yeah okay yeah. so in, in combat right but like what was your favorite i'm not talking about combat balance but just for like the interactions or just because you enjoyed having them around what was your like favorite go-to party i think the earlier ones are the best um i i think morgan and alistair have a lot of really good banter uh because they're they're the first two that you get um and in a lot of ways i feel like they get the most care in their writing um i like liliana a lot full stop franchise you don't you don't have to explain anymore yeah we know you love liliana yeah i think she's super interesting in inquisition but i actually coming back to this thought she was kind of boring um without like the playing her like dlc and stuff but yeah i'll let someone else go i think I probably took, I probably also took Morgan and Alistair a good bit. Alistair was kind of an auto include for me because I I was playing a, when I was playing, the, the character I beat the game with was the Dwarf Noble, who I was playing as a rogue, like Archer. So I needed a tank. What's his name? Was this Sten. not? Sten just did not do it for me on any level. So if we want to talk about weak characters, I was so fucking done with Sten. We'll get, anyway. That's a digression. We'll get to it in a second. But Alistair uh, Morgan and um, Shale. Did you play with Shale? Yeah, I love okay. Shale. Shale was great. Shale, I mean, Shale was great, like, mechanically. Super fun, different. And, like, has the best just, like, ambient quips and stuff. And plus playing as a dwarf, like, having Shale takes on added meaning for a variety of reasons. And uh, so probably Shale, Morgan, Alistair, an honorable mention to Wynn, who I really, like, it is so rare to have, like, an older person really, full stop, be, like, a, a party member in a game like this, um, and especially, like, an older woman. And I thought her character was just, like, super well-realized, really, really enjoyed Wynn as, as a character in this game. Yeah. I, I pretty much full agree on all everything that you said there when's super interesting because if you date within the party she's very like seems like hoity-toity like you better watch your ass and not be fucking around and shit but you learn that she actually had a kid when she was in the circle and it's highly implied it's with the now first enchanter or not first enchanter um head of the templars what's his name gregor yeah the knight commander knight commander gregor um and that's he her child plays into it later but when she was very young she had a kid so it's kind of like this interesting she grew up in the circle and didn't have a mother to sort of help her out and guide her and she made some mistakes and so it just is very like touching that she is like this mothering role in the party and she has some really good dialogue like with Alistair where she's fussing over him and needs to mend his socks and stuff so I just yeah I think Win was a great sort of addition. I loved Zevran. <laughs> and I loved Zevran with Win because he would hit on Win and she kind of liked it. Um, yeah, but I think 
I mean, they all have really interesting backstories that give you peeks into different parts of the world. So with Leliana, she was Ferelden born but raised by a wealthy Orlesian woman. And you, especially as an elf, can have a conversation with her where you basically call her out on her implicit biases about the way that elves are treated in Orlais. Which is like, oh yeah, well, she had elf servants, but she treated them really well, blah, blah, blah. And you're like, you mean elf slaves? Because elves are still kept in bondage there. And it, as the game goes on, and then knowing later in the franchises that Leliana is a big proponent for elven rights, like, you can see the way that you as a player, but specifically you as a player through whatever your origin of choice is, can influence the way that people think. And you also then get the feedback of learning what lives are like for these people in this kind of spread out world that you don't get to explore because you're stuck in Ferelden. But you can talk to Zevran, who tells you all about Antiba and that it smells like leather and that he was raised in a whorehouse and that they're basically run by a shadow organization of assassins. Like, that's dope as hell. I want to know more, Zevran. I'm going to spam the dialogue button with you in camp. You know, so I just think, it, and, and Sten, you, despite the fact that you were bored with him, learn a, a lot about what the early sort of prototype for what Kunari culture was, which obviously becomes more important as the franchise goes on. Yeah, like, I think... I agree with all of that, and I, I just to go back to why I didn't connect with Stan, like, I wouldn't say it's that I was bored with Stan. Stan was bored with me. Like, <laughs> yeah. I think I get what they were going for with that character. I think it fell flat in two ways. Like, I, by the time that we get to Inquisition, and, and including what happens in 2, not to say too much since uh, Andy has not played 2, but like, mm-hmm. the Kunari become really interesting and like especially as like kind of an original race that isn't like it doesn't derive like from kind of tolkien tropes like really like what they've done uh with the kunari but in origins i think their characterization is pretty weak and i think with stan they just went overboard on like he is so standoffish that at a certain point i was like all right well fuck you like i'm I won't take you in my party. I'm going to stop talking to you because like, I just don't like to like step outside the narrative as a video game player. I know that one of two things will happen with STEM. He either will not change in any way, in which case I'll just be annoyed and have gotten nothing for my trouble. Or like, he's eventually going to open up and like, blah, blah, like that tough nut to crack. Yeah. I the whole tough nut to crack thing can be really rewarding, and I get it. But, like, his his nut was too tough. <laughs> because I was like, you know what? This is not going to be, like, it's not even worth the, like, w- warm-hearted, uh, like, character growth moment that I will probably get to. He calls you Kadan, which means my heart. You learn from Iron Bull well, he in calls, Inquisition. He called you that, because yes. I just gave up. I was like, I got him this cool sword, got him a sword back, uh, but I was just like, Stan, you die too quickly because you use two-handed and you don't have enough defense and you're kind of a jerk. So I've got other people that are really cool that I can take with me. If if certain things play out, Sten does come back in Inquisition. Oh, right. He can be um, the he air shock. He can be the air shock. But uh, 
Anyway, that's why that's my essay on no. why Stan is not that great. <laughs> yeah, I hundred percent agree. Like, I I like what I think they're going for anyway on paper, where it's he's supposed to be like another subversive thing where you go to talk to him, and you know, as you're used to playing video games, you think he's just going to talk to you, but he doesn't. He's just like, I'm not interested in talking to you, and. Like on paper, I think that's cool. Like it, it re- like as we were saying, it's something that reinforces him as like his own person. Like he just doesn't care about you. But I agree. I think they took it too far over the top. Whereas like I felt like I made an effort to talk to him like on my first playthrough, every opportunity I could, and I never got anywhere with him. Like I think if it could happen a little bit more organically and not just through like doing his quest and giving him gifts. I think it could have worked maybe a little bit better, but I I think I agree it's it's a bit too much for what you get out of it. And I don't know how much, maybe I'm just misremembering, but like, how much do we really learn about Canari culture and origins? I mean, you learn from talking to Sten, which is that he gives you the basic principles of you are, you exhibit a certain trait, they decide that therefore you work a certain job. That is your job. You don't question it. Mm-hmm. Your place within the culture is understood. You don't kind of question that stuff. And he pushes back on you if you try to push back on him. But that's Sten is the only Kunari. Yeah, that's, yeah. Maybe we just needed like more Kunari to well, like reinforce. Clearly, they didn't know what they were doing with the design fully. So it's yeah, because they were just like tall humans, right? Yeah, <laughs> and their design it is was- much cooler and in, into and. In position yeah i think a good point of comparison um would be to like compare them to like klingons and star trek like you you learn a lot about Worf in next generation when they contrast him against other klingons and like how he fits into the federation and stuff and that something like that could have been used to a great effect i think in this yeah that's a good point and i'm trying to think of like a surely they've done this trope in other games, I feel like oh, um, like Rex in Mass Effect Rex was kind Mass Effect of like that. that. I mean, I mean, they do that with Mass Effect and all the characters. Tally is the first Corian you really get to know, right? I'm just thinking like the person who is standoffish and you have to like get through before they. Well, Rex is a little bit, but yeah, I know it's not exactly right. Mm. Yeah, you guys haven't played it, but um, Kamari from Final Fantasy X is like that. Yeah, like I'm a fan of that trope. It can be done well because you feel like you've earned you've earned it when you finally get their like trust. I just I agree with Andy um, that it was just like a little too. So one thing I wanted to talk about because I replayed like the first third of the game in preparation for this, and one thing that stood out to me when I got to Lothering was the like the way the quest design is structured, and I think it it really goes a long way because like this as. I got at in the beginning. Um, this came out in 2009, which was like earlier days for three full 3D games, uh, like on a big scope. So I think they do a lot with what they have. Like, Lothering's a pretty small place, but there's a lot of quests packed in there. And I like the way they kind of all like weave together. Like, um, helping the woman make the traps. You can either do that or help the guy make the poison. And like, those two quests like are opposed to each other. Because, like, she wants the traps for the monsters that are coming in that he's getting the poison from, or it relates in some way like that. And I think that's really cool how it's, like, all layered in different quests kind of 
affect the others. Oh yeah, I think the most obvious example of this is when you get to Redcliffe, you can save Connor without anyone dying if you didn't release or kill Jowan, if Jowan's still in the basement. And if you either didn't recruit the mages yet and then go do so, or if you had already visited the Circle Tower, you had better had recruited the mages and not let them get wiped out by the Templars. So, like, in order to achieve the quote-unquote best outcome in Redcliffe, you have to set up a very specific order of events in other big quest areas. Otherwise, either Connor or his mother are getting killed. Yeah, and it, it stands out, I think, a lot more on that like macro level, but I was surprised how it also happens on the micro level too. Like yeah. I just that was something that I really appreciated when I was playing it a second time. Yeah, there was um another example of how like little quests interacting um is in is in the in the dwarf noble origin, the greatest of all origins. Um you do something called the proving where you fight in basically like a combat tournament that's being held in your honor. And um you can the last guy you fight is like you know, he's the toughest of the people you fight. Um, and so it's not like a difficult combat because it's early, it's early in the game. But uh, you can choose to let him keep the, like, reward for winning the Proving. Forget what it is. I think it's a shield. It's a helmet. It's a helmet. It's a helmet. And uh, as, like, a recognition of, like, you fought very well, that guy meets up with you later in the game uh, when you're, like, doing your mission in the Deep Roads. And you can have a little bit of dialogue with him where he's like, oh, like, I'll treasure this forever. Like, you really honored me by giving me this. And then it turns out that he is one of the two people that your younger brother paid off to lie and say that you killed your older brother. So, like, when everyone shows up, and it's like, what happened here? And your younger brother is like, oh, he must have killed him. I remember feeling like, oh, but I got this guy with me. Like, we're t- totally tight. <laughs> Like he's he'll my helmet, bro. My like, helmet, he, bro. Yeah, I was like, he'll vouch for me for sure. And then when he doesn't, it's so it's it's like a dagger in the back. Like it it was such a small thing that like I was surprised at how much it affected me. Because like I even thought the voice actor for his character did a really good job. Like you could, I got the sense of like he was really pained by having to betray you in this way. So like that was a, and you could have totally missed that. Like you could have fought him and just been like, cool, I won the thing i'm keeping the helmet piss off um <laughs> well but also in the dwarf noble origin the origins uh you can have a threesome yes with some dwarf no, that's true nice that does make it the best i i love that number one the game lets you do that <laughs> because it's just so like when it happened the only reason i even did it i was i was like the game is going to put up some like wall to this happening because it's such a goofy option. Your dad's going to step out and wag right. his finger at you. But like, no, it totally does. Um, and then when you come back, one of them, when you come back to Orzammar later, one of them was like, oh, hey, I had your kid. And like, there's a whole quest line with like, what do you do about, and if you like support your brother, your house gets restored, or like you get restored to your house and like you can choose to have your son recognized as a member of the Iduken family, or you could, like, choose to totally, like, put her out on the street, or, like, there's a lot of options, and, like, all of that grows out of, like, a small, a very small choice in, like, the opening moments of the game that you honestly could just totally miss. Like, you don't even have to talk to those people. They're just, like, random people on the street. 
Um, that are like, hey, I want to party. Wink, wink. <laughs> right. And even that is connected. Like, And it's not just a joke because they are, I forget what they call them, but like, it is a thing in Orzammar that like women from like the lower caste will like seek out nobles to like sleep with in the hopes of getting pregnant. I mean, there are potentially problems with that in, from like as a trope, but um, like, well, but, but it also plays into the society, like the way that the society is built right? because it's there's caste, because there is a caste system. And so, I mean, Bioware is not uh, ashamed of filching from real life sources. So clearly, the caste system is inspired by real life versions right. of caste systems that exist today, where the child takes on the caste of its same sex parent. So, a boy child would take on the caste of its father. Mm-hmm. So, your male child in this case would take on the Idukin name. There's a quest that you can run into, again, in Dusttown in Orzammar, of a woman who was a noble woman, but had a son with someone of a lower caste. And so her family would not take in her son, because technically he was bound to the lower caste. And so there's this whole, especially in Orzammar, where you're fighting against like modernity versus tradition. And then it's the other areas of the game with the Dalish. You're fighting against, you know, humans versus elves in the alienage. You're fighting against, you know, servitude of of the elves and kind of their oppression. With the mages, it's mages versus Templars. You know, there are these constant push and pull of these smaller clusters of societies within the larger gameplay that all sort of interweave and interconnect. So if you're an elf, you're more likely to be on the side of the elves in the alienage and the elves in the Dalish camp. But are you an elf rogue? Because then you might be more neutral in the Templar versus mage fight. But because you're an oppressed elf, you might be more on the side of the castless and the lower castes and Orzammar. So who are you going to support for king then? So I think it's it's just an interesting kind of interplay of the way that one quest feeds into another quest, even if they're in different areas of the map or in different areas of the groups that you're trying to recruit from. Them's the breaks, kids. <laughs> yeah, it just it's really impressive. Like the it just seems like something that you would think most RPGs would try and do, like is stuff that people seem to generally like. But it is rare that you see it done so well. Yeah, you just, we just keep bringing up like examples of like, yeah, and like Janelle says, like stuff that's evolved with like the elf origin can affect the tie in with stuff from the dwarves in Orzammar and all that stuff. And like the way it all just compounds and uh, interacts with each other is really cool. Yeah. And I, I like how much like you brought up um, that you can miss. Like, um, it it's not afraid to let you just miss significant content. Like you can miss out on party members and you can miss out on like major, as you said, like you can, ha- your character can just have like a bastard child. Right. Uh, and that can just not happen to you. Uh, even if you play that, uh, origin. So I just think that's really commendable. And it, it lends to that replayability. As I said, um, the game, because it was, when it was made, they had, they couldn't make the game probably as big as they wanted. So they make it really dense. Didn't you kill Zevran the first time around? No, I just 
well, that's another thing I think is really great about the writing um, and like in how it lets you have your own personal experience. Like I had no idea that he could be a party member. Like you just have that run in <laughs> with him and like we fought and then he we ceased the fighting. And then I was like, get out of here. Like, I never want to see you again or something like <laughs> yeah. that. And he just left. He just left. And a not unreasonable been... thing to do to somebody that just tried to kill you. Yeah. And like. I had no idea until I was talking to Janelle that he's a party member. I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> I was like, oh, have you encountered Zevran yet? And you're like, who did? And I'm like, the elf guy who tries to kill you that Logan hires? And you're like, yeah, what about him? He left. And I'm like, no, <laughs> he's so spicy. Well, you can also miss party members uh, in Lothering if you don't, which is maybe kind of a, I don't love so much, although it didn't happen to me. But, like, the game does not communicate, really, that, like, once you leave Lothering, you can't come back. Right. Um, and if you happen to be, like, kind of rushing or something and don't meet up with Liliana or, or Sten, them, yeah. then, like, you do miss out on your chance to get them. Yeah. I I kind of like that, though. Like, I think it makes your playthrough more interesting, like, because it's going to be, it is just going to be different than someone else's. It does cause plot holes, though, because if you leave Liliana in Lothering... Or if you, at the urn of sacred ashes, defile the ashes, and she gets pissed, and she's in the party, and you have to kill her. How's she showing up in Inquisition? She's mm. like, the maker saved me. That's true, actually. You have to kill Because I figure if, if you leave her in Lothering, whatever, you I mean, you don't see her die, she could have escaped. Even right. though Lothering gets destroyed, she could right. have gotten out. But I didn't, it is true, if you have to kill her, Yeah. that is just like a... It just hand waves it. Basically, like, there's some talk about, is she the same Liliana? Is she a fake Liliana? <laughs> is she someone that assumed the identity of Liliana? Um, Robot Liliana? Some, uh, some uh, Morgan shenanigans. Yeah. Made, like a facsimile of Liliana. What else do you want to talk about in this part? Quests? Major quests? Any of the, like, plot quests? Thoughts? Feelings? Uh... You, like, you like the deep reds. Deep Roads are cool. Uh, we could round out this first half by just, like, saying a favorite quest or something or talking about, like, a particular plot line that we liked a lot. Okay. I don't want to go first, but otherwise. I guess I can go first. Uh, one, it's not my favorite, but it's one that stands out in my mind um, is the Redcliffe slash Mage's Tower section of the game, because... I play. I started playing this originally in my first aborted playthrough on PS3. I got it for like the game for like two dollars, and then quickly found out why, um, <laughs> because it it runs like crap on the PlayStation Three. But I got all the way up to that point, and I remember thinking like the the idea came up to like go to the Mage's Tower for help, and I'm like. I don't know, this seems like if I left, the demon would just kill everyone in the town. Like, I just fought all the way here, and this feels like something that has urgency and needs to be dealt with right now. So I sent Morgan into the Fade to kill the demon, and then uh, after you go through with all of that, it's just like everyone like minus 30 approval not that extreme but it's something like it's you get minus like 15 approval from like everyone in the party and it's just like basically might as well just play like a wet fart sound and say like you made the wrong decision idiot and then well, uh, because you I, killed I a woman <laughs> you used blood magic from a woman's true 
True. Dead body like, to save her son. <laughs> I don't think anyone liked that. I I still feel like it was the more logical decision to make in that circumstance. And it's another thing I think feels like it highlights how good the quest writing is in the rest of the game. Because like that stands out to me so much that I feel like the decision I feel like makes less sense to do is clearly the correct one. It's, I think it's one of the areas of the game where it feels like they kind of railroad you towards making a specific decision that they want you to make. I do kind of agree that going to the Mage Tower, it's like a good idea, and I, like I thought of it even before the dialogue option came up, but then mm-hmm. it does feel like, and I even asked you this the first time I played, like, okay, if I'm going to leave, like probably something really bad is going to happen by the time I get back. And I was like, sure nope. Yeah, you would sure think so. <laughs> so I think that was uh, it was definitely fair to think that that could be true. So I think it tried to give you a hard choice. Um, and I think if it had punished you for spending the time to go to the Mage Tower, that would have been it would not have been unfair. So I agree with you. The quest that stands out in my mind is the DLC quest in Hanleaf to get Shale. Because that was a good one. Yeah, I just, the whole sequence was good, and I did the right choice and managed to expel the demon from Kitty. <laughs> I accidentally didn't. No, no, Daniel Daniel was playing this, and I was doing work or whatever, and he's like, ugh, I don't care about this. Yeah, she can just have the girl. I was, like, dying laughing <laughs> as you send this little girl back to her dad with a demon, <laughs> demon on board bumper sticker. And you're like, yeah, sure, whatever, I don't care. Give me the rod. Bye! <laughs> Let me go wake up Shale. Um, I just thought that was an interesting one where you do... Um, and I think demons in this game in particular are very interesting because you get kind of fleshed out versions of a lot of different demons, whether it's... Or tits out, depending on what kind of demon. Tits out, desire demons, mm-hmm. hello, heller. <laughs> um, speaking of desire demons... I think the first time you see one is in the Mage Tower quest. And that's the one that, again, it's not necessarily my favorite, but if we're talking about like most standout uh, quests, I think love it or hate it, the sloth demon like slog is interesting. And like, I enjoyed it the first time I played it a lot. I thought it was like kind of a breath of fresh air. I like the puzzle-solving aspect of it. I like the way that you could use the different powers, even in combat. Um, you're there without any party members for most of it, which is a way of mixing things up. It is pretty long, and having to do it more than mm-hmm. once is not that fun. Um, and I imagine I imagine some people think that that's like the worst part of the game. But uh, it stands out. It, it definitely stands out. Like They tried to do something there. They like tried yeah, to mix I it think- up, and I think it was mostly successful. Yeah, I think it'd be a lot more enjoyable if you didn't also have the whole Mage Tower lead up. Yeah, it's long. It's a long way to get to, like, the beginning of it. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. thinking back on it, I I didn't dislike that part, but it does feel like that's, like, half of the game, (laughs) almost, in my mind. (laughs) As someone who has played through this game three times, I can tell you that every part of the game, when I think about it on its own, I'm like, ugh, Deep Reds again. Ugh, Mage Tower again. Ugh, Brazilian Forest again. And people are like, why the fuck do you like this game? Like, it's my favorite game, leave me alone. Like, every every part of it feels like a slog, and then you're in it. And then I'm like, 
what am I doing again? As I'm like blinking on the other side of it. I'm like, oh yeah, saving Connor. I'm now 87. (laughs) I just battled through every part of the Mage's Tower and the Fade. And I'm back in it. Let's go. But I like that part with the Desire Demon in the Mage Tower too. Just talking about like standout thing. Like it's such a little thing, but it's like, it's an interesting moment and an interesting choice. And at the time you have no idea if like, again, because the game adds stakes to most decisions by having sometimes small decisions have important impact and sometimes not. So like, you don't know when you let them go, like, well, I hope uh, she doesn't come back as like the end boss or something. Um, <laughs> or like, it turns out I just, I accidentally committed genocide somehow. That w- but that was a neat moment in the game. Mm-hmm. My probably actual favorite quest is the part with the werewolves with the with the Dalish. The lady I don't have anything super meaningful to say about it, but I thought that part was really cool. Tits out for the Lady of the Forest, <laughs> who also has her tits out. We can also get our tits out after, after the, the break. break. <laughs> Welcome back from the break. Uh, I think before the end there, I don't know if it's going to be cut out or not, but we mentioned coming back and actually talking about the combat since we uh, neglected to do that on the first half. Um, So in my two playthroughs, I played melee classes both times. I played as a a knight or a fighter character, whatever it's called in this game, and then a rogue the second time. Yeah, warrior and then a rogue. Personally, I, I did dueled rogue, mage, and then two-handed warrior. I did mage and rogue because I never play melee characters in RPGs ever. <laughs> but you did, you did play archer rogue. Yeah, yeah. Which is a bit different. Than- I really like that. Well, I I played it mainly because it uh, had the cool ranger subclass where you get an animal companion. Because I always want to play a pet class if I can. Um, but I have to say, even though I beat the game as a ranger, I think Mage, in terms of combat, was easily my favorite. And I think that the maybe the like the wielding rogue is different, but the archer rogue is like kind of simple. There's not a lot to do. Its abilities aren't that good. Like there's like an assassinate ability or something. Like a there's like a powerful shot that it, it takes up a lot of stamina that is pretty good. All the others are very situational. Like, the crippling, the pin-down shot never seems to do very much. Uh, it never, like, holds them long enough to be useful. Um, and all the different stances, other than rapid shot, uh, never really seem to be that good. Mage, on the other hand, like, you just have, like, a total panoply of cool and interesting stuff that you can do. So I think that Mage is more more engaging. Yeah, I'm, like, the polar opposite of you when it comes to, like, classes we'd like to play in RPGs. Right. But... Messing around with the other characters was something I made it a point of doing on this playthrough. And, like, the mages do seem to just have the most stuff they can do. Like, at least the most, like, interesting and effective things they can do in combat. Uh, Like, so much so that it almost kind of feels like it's designed around the mage character and the others feel like, I don't know, like, just not nearly as fleshed out. I to me. I, I disagree. Um, I really loved playing a dual wielding rogue 
There's, um, I liked the duelist subclass that you can get from either playing cards with and beating or sleeping with Isabella in the Pearl in Denarum, um, which I really liked as a subclass. There are, um, I think interesting subclasses for each of the fighting styles. With the mage, sure, there's a lot of good stuff, but at the same time, I've found myself switching between my party members a lot and playing as Morgan sometimes. So for me, my character's build was more of what felt appropriate from a story perspective. And if I felt like, oh, this is a situation where a deft hand at the mage is called for, then I would find myself, you know, playing as Wynn, for example. Or if I really needed Alistair to fucking tank Jesus Christ, my dude, and no matter how often I go into the controls and tell him, like, be aggressive, be be (laughs) aggressive, he just wasn't doing it. You know, I had to, you know, puppet his body for a while. So I guess for me, I was kind of playing the full... Oh, and how did we not mention Dog? I don't know how many times everyone in my party was dead except Dog. And here I am, like, well, okay, I guess I'm going to run around and nip at heels. (laughs) See, you touched on a lot of good stuff there. Number one, I never took Dog because all the party characters are more interesting than a dog. I mean, the dog is is cool. What did you name your dog? I can't remember. Ah, What did you name your dog, Andy? Uh, Wumbo. <laughs> um, it's a tradition of mine. Anytime there's like a animal companion character, they're always Wumbo. But that is one way in which we differ in how we play the game and probably how we play RPGs generally. Like, I only want to play my character. Like, I would never, unless I need it, felt like I needed to, I would never switch off to like a, a, another party member to control them directly. And it really, like, I feel different ways about the combat in this game, because on the one hand, the combat systems are, like, objectively very good or even great, because, like, the AI systems that you can tinker with are cool, like, there's a lot of depth there, you can really get, like, as hands-on as you want to, and even doing, like, the pause and do the overview on the map, you can queue up different, like, abilities, like, if you are good at this game, there is so much to do that is rewarding. Um, and it rewards, like, careful attention. I think that's what a lot of people don't like about them, like, stripping out systems and stuff, is, like, there's it, there's not that level of engagement. So, like, on the one hand, that's all great. On the other hand, I've get, I'm, like, getting too old to be good at a game like this. And, like, I just <laughs> want to... There's definitely a time in my life where I would have been, like, all in on it. Like, learning all the systems and, like, maximizing my effectiveness. Now, like, I kind of just want to, the combat's enjoyable, but, like, I kind of just want to enjoy the story. Um, and Smooch Morgan. Yeah, and Smooch Morgan. Um, <laughs> and so, like, I didn't use a lot of those systems. And so, like, I personally found the combat to be, like, not my favorite part of the game and at times kind of tedious. But, like, that's mostly a problem of my own making. So I'm not really sure where I'd come out on it in the end. Like, I kind of... Yeah. Like a crotch of the old man. Yeah, like I kind I enjoy the combat in Inquisition more. It's objectively probably worse, but I enjoy it more because I am not as good at this game as uh, I could be. Yeah, I, that was my experience with it. My first playthrough as well. Like I kind of tried to play it like it was an MMO, or a little bit kind of closer to like Xenoblade, which you guys don't have uh, experience with, but um. 
yeah, it's like a character, a game where your character auto attacks, and then you have like a palette of abilities on the bottom that you choose from uh, to do whenever it seems appropriate or useful. And if you, I found anyway, if you play it like that, the game is super hard. Yes, but for whatever reason, I never like I stubbornly just. I tried to play it like it was an action game more than like it was like a tactical CRPG. Like I never scrolled the wheel back to have the tactical view. It was always like the third person camera. And this playthrough, I I tried to like, as I do with podcast games, try to meet them on their own terms and play them the way that they want to be played. And I found myself enjoying the combat more that way when I like actually like played into like its design. Yeah, but I think I, I that think is that has... the way to enjoy it. But it just requires it requires more investment from you as a player. Yeah, and it seems like that's probably not that uncommon of a thing given where the series has gone. Like Inquisition like enables you to play that way if you want to. And 2 was like a more of like a straight up kind of action game. So, I don't know, like having now played the game again and really like actually paid attention to the systems more I, I feel like i prefer that which is not something i would have guessed would have been the case what do you think i mean i i told you like i did actually kind of dabble into you know programming like okay mm -hmm. let's say i want alistair to perform in a more defensive role from now on when needs to stay back because she's awfully squishy dog is the tank whatever like i could do some of that and like i said i would body hop a lot in in combat but again that wasn't the most important part of the game for me but i guess maybe i didn't have kind of the trappings or like preconceived ideas for how the combat should run or what it should feel like or what i should do so it didn't come across as that unwieldy to me but then again i also played the game three times so far <laughs> mm -hmm. so that might have something to do with it fair enough yeah i just think that's interesting i, I think it's it has to do with how the, the the camera is set up for the more like kind of modern third person game view and then during combat they want you to play it like an older crpg and i think the way it's presented is going to just not gel or click with people uh because of the presentation yeah i think that's right but anyway, uh, I guess if we want to move on to the uh, the world building aspect of it. Sure. I don't have, like, hopefully too much to say on it, but I, w I would be remiss if I didn't mention that I think, like, I play a lot of RPGs. It's always been one of my favorite genres of games. And RPGs are, it is hard to be good at world building. And to, like, build an original world that is interesting and engaging. I think that that's probably Dragon Age's greatest greatest success as a series. They, I for my money, they are the single best, like, original, like, video game RPG world. I think they have, like, they have drawn on a lot of classic tropes. Like, they're not, they're not super original or anything. It's just very well realized. Like, a very rich world. It feels lived in. It feels like there's a lot of like actual history. Um, and I find myself, it's one of the only games where like I will read the codex entries and like enjoy that. So I think they've, it, they, it is tremendous, tremendously successful on that front. 
um, in terms of like creating a creating a world from scratch for me. Yeah, I mean, the Dragon Age is nine centuries after the founding of the dominant Andrastian religion, and then there's a lot of stuff that happened before it was founded. So that's what like I'm about three thousand years. We're talking generally speaking. It's roughly equivalent to modern day with Christianity, plus maybe, like, a few hundred more years. And, like, they have, like, a general map of world events that have happened that have shaped the world that you're playing in that you only get snippets of, bits and pieces and crumbs that you sort of pick up and piece together. Like, you know that there are these other kingdoms, and you know that Orlais and Ferelden have beef, and that up until recently, Orle was occupying Ferelden, but, like, you don't really know what's going on there, for real, unless you, like, talk to the right people, and then you get to figure out a little bit more. And so it, it there's a lot of um, interplay there where you are a newcomer to this world, but even if you were living in this world, you wouldn't know the truth about Andraste this religious figure. So, like, you're hearing everything secondhand from people in the game who they themselves heard it secondhand. You know? So it, it feels very much like the way that information is kind of interpreted and passed down through occupation and through migration and through the founding of religions and and educational sort of um, dissemination of information. Yeah, everyone you talk to kind of has like a different interpretation of the world. And so you get kind of bits and pieces of the world that you have to put together to figure out like what Thetis is really all about. Yeah. yeah like, Go ahead, uh, I was just going to say, um, I- I'm certainly no Dragon Age historian like Janelle is, but uh, I-, I do think there is something about the presentation in this, like, you could say stuff like that about, um, like, the Elder Scrolls. Like, it has, like, a history written into it. But for one reason or another, like, the way it's presented in-game just doesn't... is never really engaged me that much. Um, and I, I, it might just be because this is more story-driven and Elder Scrolls is more, like, simulation. You know, like, more like you in the world experiencing it. But, um, yeah, there's just something, of, like, about the storytelling that makes you care in like a subtle way. Um, yeah. And, and I think like what you were saying, Daniel, it has this, like there are cliches that it falls back on. Like it does have these like kind of more familiar uh, Tolkien esque elements, but I think it uses those to establish like a familiar foundation. And it's the way it builds upon that, which is what's really good about it. Like it, so many, um, similar kind of uh rpgs before and after this just kind of use the forgotten realms or something that feels really derivative of that and this feels interesting and unique while still being familiar like it threads that needle i think like it it finds that sweet spot where it doesn't feel like it's cliche yeah i i i completely agree with that and i think like, it's interesting that it has, it has, like, kind of a different take on elves, and has, like, a little bit of a different take on dwarves. I mean, it, it takes those, like, it starts from a baseline of kind of a very Tolkien-inspired baseline, but does iterate on, iterate on it in an interesting way. And I think 
for me, you mentioned, like, there's something in the presentation of this game that, like, it makes it kind of stick with you, the world building stick with you in a way it doesn't in other games. And for me, what that is, is, like, every RPG that has a new, that invents its own world has, like, word salad. Um, I'm playing, I'm playing Pillars of Eternity right now, and, like, God, there are so many proper nouns in that game. Um, and that's not, that's also true of Dragon Age, but I actually think what Dragon Age does that is really smart and what part of why it's so successful is you learn what those things are through like quote unquote lived experience in the game such that you like actually like understand them and care about them. Like you meet people from Orle or from Antifa, uh, and like you, you either are a mage or like no, like you get to see what the mages went through. Like you see what the Templars are all about. Like you see Logan being obsessed with defending Ferelden from invasion. Like you get to experience all the parts of the world, and that's how like it they connect with you. And you were like, that's why you remember what the proper nouns are because like they actually mean something to you, and it's not just like something that's spit out at you like in a line of text or dialogue that like has no meaningful connection to like what you actually do, uh, which happens a lot, at least in Pillars of Eternity to, so far in my experience, although I do really like that game. So I think that like, the, I think that's where it's real successes in, in world building. Yeah. It like, um, it focuses on its own story and not so much on its lore. Like it, it peppers that stuff in like naturally. It, it doesn't just like exposit it all at you and serve you that word salad. Uh, it kind of, it, it mixes it in in a more natural way that makes it stick. And then if you're really interested, you can buy the two, <laughs> yeah, buy the, buy the, yeah. two Worlds of Thetis and just really fill up your brain. But, like, you can actually get through the game. And, like, I remember, Andy, when you were playing through The Witcher 3, and I'm like, oh, what's the story with XYZ thing? And you're like... You know, I don't, I don't know. Or <laughs> like, yeah, there's so much in The Witcher, though. Goddamn. Right, but like, at least with this, I could be like, "Well, what did you think of Denerim?" And you're like, "Oh, Denerim, that's the capital city. Like, there are places that have concrete meanings and descriptions." Or, but I mean, it's the same thing with with Skyrim. It's like, you know, the wintry place with all the snow, and the mage place, Winterhold. Yes, that is. That is the one. Like, for me, Skyrim is just like a playground where you just yeah. mess around and you are the best at all the things. And that's it. It's real cool. And you try to climb a mountain. But, like, at least with this, because I guess maybe it's more guided, maybe it is the story focus of it that it actually teaches you with real world examples the things that it needs you to know to have a concrete take away from the game Mm -hmm. and like the characters are often like the it makes you care about the characters and they're often from important places or involved with important things well and it's also makes you care in a number of ways that the places are also based on real world places like clearly antivo is based on spain and orle is based on france so you're kind of like all right france is beefing with england if ferelden is like england or scotland because they kind of give off that rugged sort of Scottish vibe. You know, like, all right, yeah, Zevran is fantasy Spanish. So, like, even if you break it down that far, like, there there are bits and pieces of familiarity, whether it's familiar within the fantasy genre 
or familiar within, kind of like the real world, but spiced up and, and flipped 90 degrees or so. Well, I guess kind of as far as the world building is concerned and how much the story actually explained to you, what was your take on like what Darkspawn were other than just they're very bad and we must kill them before they kill us? I kind of thought that, like, to be honest, the Darkspawn did not grab me as, that much as part of the story. Um, I think the whole concept of, like, the Deep Roads and the Darkspawn is very cool. And I like that aspect of it. As enemies, I just thought of them as, like, orcs, essentially. And I thought, like, when I step back from the story of Origins, the Darkspawn kind of seemed like a footnote, which is crazy, because they're supposed to be, like, the animating threat. But, like, I think that, like, Logan's rise to power and, like, recruiting the allies of the Wardens and, like, dealing with Logan is, like, the real part of the story. And then, like, the fact that you then kill the Archdemon is, like, kind of just an epilogue. So, really, Logan is the, the, the main villain, or the more active villain. I for sure. I mean, I yeah, I think that's definitely true. I I really like. I know you hinted at this before. Maybe we don't have that much to say, but like, I think Logan's a cool character because he's like a little complicated. He's not just like pure evil. Um, and I really like the option to have him join the wardens at the end. And I think uh, throughout the rest of the, I mean, the rest of the series and in Inquisition, like the fact that Logan was a warden uh, can have some really rewarding consequences. So. I like. I thought Logan was like the actual villain. I don't. The Archdemon is like whatever. You said his name when we were on break, and like I couldn't for a billion dollars, I couldn't have told you the Archdemon's name. Right. <laughs> oh God. Um. I'm trying to remember everything that I know about Darkspawn. Yeah. Like they they come from the Deep Roads, and then they seek out the Ar- or the Archdemon controls them. Yeah, they're, they're, they're kind of like to him. they're kind of like a hive mind, basically. Yeah. So the dark spawn are always really have... the dark spawn are always around, but just when the archdemon is awake and bumping, and there's a blight, there are just more of them, and they mm-hmm. are swarming the surface instead of just chilling the deep roads. So really, the dwarves love when there's a blight on because they're like, "Whew, some relief! They're all popping up to the surface." But did you have a theory as to like what they are? Oh no, or, I know what they are. But it just okay. it was This is just an exam. Well no, um. no, no. My point I didn't know if you had some kind of like theory as to like their origins or something. No, so I that's guess not in the game. Or what something. my question and how it pertained to the world building that Darkspawn to me were a good example of this, is that often they don't just tell you the truth in the game. Because the characters themselves may not know the truth. They're like, oh, we think the Darkspawn are this, and it came from this. Like, some people think that the Blight was caused when the Taventer Magisters sacrificed a bunch of slaves and climbed into the Golden City, and the Maker was like, bad, 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 and cast them down to Earth, and they were the first Blighted creatures. And, like, that's, like, the religious explanation. Other people think, like, there's a more, like scientific or whatever this world's version of scientific explanation is but my point was like i think those aspects of the world building are cool that not everything is just presented to you as like factual truth here's what it is because in the game they themselves wouldn't know and probably religions would grow around these aberrations and things like it but that 
for people who don't want to go and read the lore Bible, like, if that was, like, a loss in the end, that you didn't get a full explanation of what the Darkspawn were. Or if it I think the, that's right. Or if at the end of the day, like, it doesn't really matter because Logan was the villain that we needed to care about, and the Darkspawn were just things that we went and beat up in between cutscenes. I think both of those things are probably true. I mean, it's hard to say. Like, I could, I could, I could certainly imagine a world in which they flesh out what the Darkspawn are in a way that is interesting and adds to the experience of the game. But, like, as it actually happened, for me at least, like, they were just kind of, like, faceless enemies, which is fine. They served a purpose in the game. And then I think the actual heart of the game, as I said, really wasn't the Darkspawn. And I, I'm quite all right with that. Like, I think... Right. Every Dragon Age game really is, like, ultimately about kind of, like, political or, like, conflict between different groups and, like, political machinations. And I just think that's, like, that's so much a part of, like, what Dragon Age is to me. And I enjoy that aspect of it so much that I, I'm happy to, like, just not be fighting, like, a sea of what are essentially orcs uh, as, like, the big culmination of of the game experience. Yeah, I, I like that there isn't a concrete answer. Like, I, I like I agree with what Janelle was saying. Um, it, it does make it's one of those things that feels more true to life, um, where there's different interpretations of things by different groups uh, in like different contexts that they view it through, which I think is really interesting. And like, in, I, I'm glad that you don't find some kind of like ancient tablet or some <laughs> kind of scroll or you meet with a character like flemeth or something that has some kind of ancient knowledge that they drop on you and just tell you the truth like it's a lot more interesting to know like they come up out of the deep roads like that's mysterious and interesting and like it, the implications there that like there could there's some kind of explanation out there but like leaving it up to your imagination i think is more interesting yeah totally agree and for a game that was so inspired by lord of the rings one way that they deviated from that story and in a good way i think is like focusing on a more human antagonist and like a more like a human kind of conflict as opposed to you know the 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 thrust of the story is like there's this pure evil force right in the archdemon and they need to defeat it well that, um, that like, was oh, i was just that was tolkien's big thing is he hated depictions of evil beings like there are no humans or like humanoid creatures in his stories who are like evil pure evil like he and he actually when someone called him out on the orcs as being like pure evil creatures like he actually did have kind of like a crisis of oh god i created these beings who are just really bad oh no um so i think that yeah it is an interesting sort of depiction of being like okay the war of the ring is over now let's hash out who becomes king after aragorn kind of shit yeah and i think that um you're right about logan as well like you need a human character like somebody you can have like a personal like uh conflict with like your your main character in addition like the have if it was just the archdemon that was the final boss that wouldn't because it, it's just an evil monster right like, yeah that like, who is really, the archdemon like yeah they wouldn't really do it <laughs> who for is you. he yeah, what like, what, what's he into? I mean, honestly, like <laughs> mm-hmm. he's, he's got nothing going on. Like, Logan betrayed you and exactly, a bunch of people yeah. that you... Betrayed his king. Yeah, that you care about. And, and like, also had some, at least, like, he didn't have a justification, but at least had 
actual motivations and like you can do interesting stuff with this character at the end as opposed to i mean you could also just kill him which is a perfectly fine uh result too but having like a re- a human antagonist gives you those possibilities where like just a big monster can there's really only one thing you can do with with a big monster stab it in its dumb head <laughs> yeah uh but anyway speaking of Logan, i think we should talk about the landsmate because I, I that's kind of the culmination there, like the 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 political final boss fight um, of the game. And I think it's one of the best, at least that I've played, examples of like uh, choice and consequence in a in a role playing game. Like it, it really feels like there's so many points where you could fuck something up or like get some kind of outcome. Like you really, I think, take it seriously and you stress out about it a bit. And like you'll you'll like walk away from your computer to think about it for a second, like kind of moments. And it's like, I don't know. I just feel like it's a really great culmination to the role playing part of the game. I will say Daniel did a minor fuck up, like you were just talking about, where he had done quests for the nobles that will support you in the lands meet, but he hadn't gone back and returned to the quest giver to say I did the thing. So when it came mm-hmm. time for the lands meet, those people were like. We hate the wardens. <laughs> so yeah. he was so pissed he had to load an earlier yeah, save. Yeah, I was super mad. I like had to stop playing for a bit. Um, <laughs> but loaded loaded an earlier save to go talk to like the three people that he didn't go back and talk to and be like, "Your fucking son's not dead. You're welcome. Hey, I got these jewels for you. Goodbye. Like whatever." And then it completely shifted the lands meet for you. Right. Like, just those couple people that you didn't double back on in your quest log it would have been a full-out brawl in the lands meet and then just those couple people that you ended up getting on your side swayed everything judiciously in your favor right and the stuff you have to decide with like alistair and Nora feels very significant um there is it's like a legitimately tough choice too i think for sure um he does a good job Origins, like, kind of across the board, does a good job with that. Like, what, deciding who's going to be the king in Orzammar, too. Like, there are, it's not just the the bad choice and the good choice. Like, you know Balin's a shithead, but he's, like, probably competent at ruling. And the other, I forget his other Haramont. His name. Haramont is, like, nicer, but will do a bad job. Um, so, like, there's some legitimate... Like, there's legitimate arguments on either side. It's a, it's a tough choice. And I think the same thing is true with Alistair and Nora. Like, I was pretty tempted to just make Nora queen without Alistair, except that I didn't want the Alistair, like, Alistair's bad ending. Because yeah. I felt bad. Right. But, like, I didn't think that Alistair had really demonstrated that he should be king of anything. <laughs> Yeah, Anora made such a bad impression on me that I just didn't want her anywhere near the throne. <laughs> <laughs> you would, you misogynist. You hate yeah. to see women You're in You're just power. like, you know what, Logan? That's true. You can actually yeah. be king. I changed my mind. <laughs> I bail. See ya. Yeah. yeah. So I, I didn't like the idea of uh, the like having them marry each other either. I'm like, I don't want her around. I just really I didn't, didn't realize like you her. hated Anora that much. I thought she was Yeah, cool. I don't know why. I just she made like a really bad impression on me. <laughs> uh for my for my city elf, basically her her thought process was like, I need people on my side in power 
so we can actually maybe get some change going on in the alienage. So she was like, Honora, you owe me if I keep you on the throne. Alistair, you're my fucking bro. And I had to harden your ass and tell you that the world sucks sometimes. So you know, you need to step up. Marry Honora. Logan, you're coming with me. Like, that to me is the right outcome. If you're not a fangirl for Alistair. Because many, many people don't want to see their sweet alley boy hardened and on the throne with that witch Nora. <laughs> um, so a lot of people leave him as the Grey Warden, which um, is, I think, kind of the, I don't want to say it's not, it's not the right choice, but I think it's the easy choice where he's been pushing off responsibility on you the whole game by being like, I don't want to make the decision. I shouldn't lead. I shouldn't be in charge. And, like, you can kind of push him throughout the game to actually assert himself and step up. And, like, it can be a fulfilling thing to leave him as a warden and say, like, he deserves a happy ending doing what he loves for a cause that he thinks is important. But it can also be fulfilling to be like, you're a big boy now. I I mean, I think Alistair's alright. I, ro- I romanced him on one of my playthroughs, but... I did. Yeah. Uh, he also but, made a bad impression on me my first playthrough. I was like, oh, he's the cis white guy. My, I'm but, the cis white guy. I don't need another one. But my, my human my human noble married him because I was like, well, one of my playthroughs, I should be the queen. Mm-hmm. So I booted Nora and was like, my turn to sit on the throne. Alistair, you're with me, my dude. I came around to Alistair. Yeah, yeah, he really grew on me. Yeah, I, I put him on the throne, and if you do that, uh, he just kills Loghain, and there's nothing you can do about it, which I don't right. like, because I wanted to make him a Grey Warden. There is there is a way that you can do it. I I thought that I read that if you put if he's him on the throne by himself, it, yeah, by himself, probably not by himself. Yeah. He has to be with Anora. He has to be with Anora. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. Anora wants to see her daddy live. No, and I mean I think at least one playthrough you should endeavor to save Logan because he does give you insight into his character and the choices that he made which while kind of batshit insane is fueled by PTSD and a very real fear of Orlay because there are machinations on Ebrisaline's part to kind of get a grip back into Ferelden and after what he lived through in the Orlesian occupation you kind of feel a little you know, I mean, he's still a shithead who killed our good, good knife dad, Duncan. Knife but dad. you know, you don't you don't hate him quite as much once you get to know him a little bit. Uh, so another, uh, I just want to talk about two other big uh, choices, which are what you do about Morrigan and the Archdemon, and then what you do ultimately about the Archdemon at the end. Mm-hmm. So. In my playthrough, my uh, my first one, I was playing basically like a paladin uh, warden, like where I was going like paragon route. And I meant to look this up because I was wondering if I'm just remembering it wrong. But I feel like the scene where Morgan's like, uh, I know how you can not die when you slay the archdemon. Like we could, uh, could have a child. I feel like the music in that scene is like, a track from like a horror movie oh no it it's is basically like right like it's like basically like spelling it out to you like this is not what you should do and if you have this child it will be the antichrist and it would be a really <laughs> bad idea but 
from no, she's hot. That on, when I looked at <laughs> online, I feel like most people do sleep with her. Yeah. And I don't know if that's just because, yeah, because Morgan is hot and every man, woman, and child is into her. And also you don't but, want to die. True, but I don't know. I just, it seemed such like, like the bad choice in that situation. So I'm just kind of surprised that it, uh, it seems like I'm in the minority. I guess from my warden's perspective, she didn't ask to be conscripted. She didn't want this. And it, it's been bombshell after bombshell of fucking white men not telling her anything. So it's like, first it's like, oh yeah, you gotta drink Darkspawn blood. And also it'll slowly kill you. And you're gonna hear the Darkspawn and stuff. And also you have to be in charge of making all these really important decisions. And then suddenly the one Orlesian warden shows up because you sprung from a dungeon. And he's like, hey, so turns out you have to die when you kill the Archdemon. Don't worry, I'll do it. But you know damn well, Mr. Riordan is doomed and it's going to be one of fucking yes. Like, at that point, she feels like, I didn't ask for any of this. I don't want to die. Like, I deserve to live and do my shit. And Morgan has, like, kind of a similar mindset to her of survival and they kind of bonded. And so I think for her, she being close with Morgan and not wanting to die are, like, two pretty strong motivators. But you're not wrong in that the music cues are, like, Oh, Rosemary's baby. (laughs) Yeah. I don't have anything to add except that I don't love that that is the choice at the end. Like, something about it just feels kind of weird to me. Like, I don't know if you feel the same way, but just kind of like the sexualization of Morrigan. Right. Like, I don't love that is the end of her story, at least in Origins. Right. It's like, you sleep, she wants you to sleep with her. It just kind of felt weird for me. But- I mean, and this is something that we didn't talk about. It's it's her fucked up relationship with Flemeth, right? Right. Because you learn that Flemeth has daughters, so she can possess their bodies and have eternal youth. So Flemeth had her fully just seeing her as a vessel. And so Morgan hasn't even probably, she's also very young, but hasn't even conceptualized like what a fucked up view of her body and like pregnancy and sex and relationships she even has at that point i feel like the only reason or the only way it doesn't feel like completely shitty and gross is if you're already in a relationship with her right Mm -hmm. right good news is for all intents and purposes after she has her child you see her in inquisition like she's kind of softened after being a mother which i mean not everyone needs to be a mother, but it seems to have done her well, so. Yeah, I watched those scenes the other day, and I was like, yeah, like, this is such, like, a like a nice outcome for her, given what that scene is like in Origins. <laughs> well, we haven't, we haven't seen the final well, yeah, we haven't seen yet. the implications, yeah. Yeah, it still also, hasn't a, come home to roost. Piece of trivia about that. The kid's name is Kieran, and that means Little Dark One mm-hmm. in Irish. Yes, it does. Well, I'm sure that's just a coincidence. Nah, nah. Totally <laughs> he and Connor can get together. He and the version of Connor that uh, the demon has, <laughs> like, uh, is promised. Because you can also be like, hey, desire demon, I want to uh, A, have sex with I you, or B, you get blood magic, uh, and I'll let you have Connor. <laughs> and the desire demon will be like, okay. DTF? So. <laughs> nice. Nice. <laughs> nice. Um, yeah, but if you refuse Morrigan, she just leaves 
and is no longer in your party for the rest of the game. Yeah. Which is kind of lame, but I like that there's a consequence to it. And then, so as I implied, I guess, uh, I, I made the, the noble sacrifice at the end and killed the archdemon myself, so my warden died and got a nice death scene at the end. I kind of like that outcome. Mm-hmm. It wasn't mine, but uh, I, I did the Morgan child option, but I kind of think that's a cool ending. It's but very it, rare that like the player character dies at the end of the story. Right. So, it, But it also works if you want the... Logan is in your party route. It's like an it's like an immediate redemption for his character because long term he can have redemption in Inquisition as well if you made him a warden. But it's a much tighter turnaround for him if he's the one to make the ultimate sacrifice. Right, right. I did, I know that you wanted to talk about the art, Andy. Oh yeah. Uh, so I like this game quite a bit, but I think one of the ways that it's aged the worst is in how it looks. And it's it's mainly the character models I think have like looked pre- look pretty dated. Um, it especially stands out with um, like Liliana and Alistair. It feels like there's a like every other NPC has the same hair as them. And it it when you contrast it against like Morgan, who has a more unique outfit and look, you're like okay, like I don't know, it just stuff that stands out about it. Um, and I think this game is in like a unique position because of when it came out. Like I feel like it really deserves a remake more so than a lot of other games because like i really like the way inquisition looks like i went they went for that more like those tarot cards um like theme they have going with like the menus and stuff and like medieval tapestries and like these saturated colors and i'm like i really love the look of inquisition and i i don't know i i wish that i could see this game like remade and done some justice in the visual department I mean, Bioware just did the Mass Effect remakes, so I'm like, TikTok motherfuckers, you know what other series needs an update? Try yeah, I totally agree. Like, I, I'm not a big fan of, um, necessarily, of, like, let's just remake every good game, yeah. but, like, this is one that totally would benefit from it, because I don't think they would have to change much of anything. I think, like, just visually updating it would, like, would be amazing. I'd love to play through it again with a modern set of visuals. And I agree, like, I I think the art direction in Dragon Age is really strong, and I think that that's, like, I, to- I completely agree that Inquisition is very cool-looking. A lot of cool art in Dragon Age 2, even. And some of the environments look, like, I think some of the interior environments in Origin still look pretty good. A lot of the Mage- Mage's Tower looks good. Um, but, like, the a- exterior, like, any grass <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> looks, like, really bad. And, um, like, yeah, the character models aren't great, um, so, and it visually, it still looks good enough to, like, play yeah, it, it holds up. through. It is not, you know, it's not, like, distractingly dated, but, um, I agree, it's, like, it's, there are parts of it that are a little ugly now, and it would look, it would benefit a lot from a remaster. That's about all I had to say about it. Is it music time? I don't really have much to say about the music. Well, I do. I like the, because the, the whole time theme. Or, like, the music that plays when you start up the game. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good trend. Well, I mean, there's actually quite a bit of controversy because they changed, just since we've been comparing across the three games this whole time, why not continue? But they changed composers. One and two had the same composer, and then they used a different composer for Inquisition. I don't hate it because I feel like Origins is much more, like, fantasy, where Inquisition is much more of, like, an action kind of game. So the the soundtrack is 
a bit more intense in that way, where Origins is a bit more like light fantasy, etc. You know, it yeah, like it feels more like you're playing a Neverwinter's Night or a Baldur's Gate, where it like has like a theme and it's kind of light and there's some drums and it's in the background. Where Inquisition is much more of a kind of like driving thematic, like there are very distinct sort of um, pieces for each of the the major arcs of the game. I mean, I think I think the soundtrack's a bop. Fantasy bop. Fantasy bop. <laughs> yeah, like I don't I don't have anything bad to say about it. It's just there's few tracks that like stand out in my memory, but yeah, I think it, it serves the game well. Just don't really have what much to say. What about the song about that it. Liliana sings? What about the oh, song that Liliana yeah. sings in camp? If you're if you're boning someone, I don't know because I was always also singing... she doesn't sing a song when you bone her. So, <laughs> well, but she is singing in the background. She's singing the background music. I I don't know. I, maybe she has some puppetry skills. She's throwing her voice outside the tent. But on that note, do we have final thoughts? Ferelden thoughts? I mean, uh, I mean, you guys know this is one of my all-time faves. All-time faves. And it only took, like, three years of bullying pretty consistently <laughs> blame, to get you guys Chad to play it. That. But, um, I mean, I hope you guys enjoyed it at least a little as much as I did. And, like, I'm aware that it's not a perfect game, um, but I don't know what, what it is about it, whether it, it was just an important time in my life that I played it, or it tickled the same part of my brain that really formative, like, books and movies did. That same kind of, like, fantasy, found family, community, magic, threats of the end of the world. I don't know. There's something about it that, like, really captured me. And, um, like I said, it's not perfect, but, you know, sometimes the things we love aren't perfect. And I would love to see Bioware return to it for a remaster. And I'm hopeful for the rest of the series, but in my heart of hearts, I don't know if uh, any Dragon Age entry will top Origins for me. Whether it's the, the the branching origin stories, the character building, um, especially for 2009. What they really should do, even if they don't get around to a remaster, please make a PC port that won't crash <laughs> yeah. as soon as you I get to, to mention that because. Yeah, if you and on the off chance you haven't played this game and are listening and have been inspired because it's basically it's been the fan cast for Dragon Age Origins. Uh the PC port is trash. Please play it on consoles. If you if you need a if you need a copy of the Xbox three sixty version, I can send you mine. <laughs> Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants. I didn't get to copy. test it in uh Denerim, but I found a patch somebody made that you use to like replace the EXE file that allows it to access four gigs of RAM so it won't crash. And it worked. I had that. And oh, it really? Work for it me. worked. It's Denerum still yeah, broke okay. the game. Uh, but yeah, it, like, I would have occasional crashes and I haven't had any uh, after I installed that. So anyway, back to your final thoughts. No, just shit broke. Please fix. <laughs> so people can play it that haven't already, that don't have an Xbox 360 somehow yeah, magically they, like I do. We have the one last <laughs> the one working last Xbox, Xbox 360. 360. Um, yeah, I, this 
I would say, like, it's sneakily probably one of my favorite games, too. It's rare these days for me to sit down and, like, beat, like, a lengthy, full, like, AAA RPG. It's just, like, I don't have the time or the attention span, but, like, this captured me enough that I did, um, which says a lot. And like I said, I just think, like, the world building is so successful, and uh, I'm, I'm, like, excited to learn more about the world of Thetis and, like, see more of the story in a way that like you know lord of the rings or like when i was reading the song of ice and fire books like when you really get captured by a world you want to learn more and you want to like spend more time in that world that's really true for me with dragon age and um art like i guess i would need to think about it more but like in a way like i'm not totally convinced this wasn't like the peak of single player like crpgs it's such like a great crossroads between like traditional and like a more contemporary approach and i'm hard pressed to think of a game that does it better including the subsequent entries in dragon age although i think the two is not half as bad as its reputation would suggest and i think the acquisition is pretty good too can i can i interject just real yeah, quick please do. um so you mentioned earlier that you foolishly started playing inquisition first before origins would you say now that you have returned to Inquisition after playing Origins, like, your experience is improved? Yeah, it's not even close. Like, I, Inquisition is, like, incomprehensible to, like, jump in as a first entry, I think. Um, and it's because, like, there's so much important, like, world knowledge you should have. Uh, I, I, Inquisition could still be a fun game, but, like, it's not half as meaningful in, unless you know what's going on, um, which requires having played the first two entries or at least watch someone else play the second entry. But yeah, I, I care about Dragon Age a whole lot. And uh, it's one of the few game series where like, I will be upset if four is no good. And like, I, there are not a lot of games like that are like that for me now, like at this point in my life. Um, but that is definitely true. Like, I think it would be a real shame if they just like squander this franchise that they have, sort of neglected a little bit since I mean Inquisition was a while ago um, so I, I just really hope they do it justice because they've got a great product on their hands yeah uh, I feel like I don't like this game as much as the two of you but Janelle loves this game a whole lot so I guess that really isn't uh, the best uh, <laughs> right. thing to compare it to it's like saying that you don't like Janelle's mother as exactly. much as she does um, <laughs> but I do Dragon Age Origins <laughs> did raise me Fun but fact. I did like this game a lot. Uh, it is uh, like uh, it is for Dan, for me, where it's I, even though I like RPGs a lot, it's rare for me to find one that I really click with. As we, we were kind of saying, like you see you, you find one on Steam and then you think it looks cool and then you're like, oh, I hope this like stands out as like a cool, unique thing. And like, you know, if you have an idea in your head of like a cool RPG. And for me, a lot of them don't live up to that. Uh, but I think Dragon Age really does. Like, I think it stands out and is interesting and unique in all the ways that you would want. Yeah, and so I, I didn't don't really have a history with, like, CRPGs, but I think you might be right. Like, it's it sits in this interesting spot in, like, RPG, like, game development uh, history where it was right on the tail end of that old style and, like, right at the beginning of a new one. And it, it does, like, for better and for worse, really makes it stand out. Even if you if you didn't like it that much, I think it's, like, a really 
it's a landmark title, I think. And um, yeah, I think it largely holds up. It's rough around the edges. Um, and as we said, the PC port crashes and stuff. But if you really like characters, if you like like a well-executed story, like this game really delivers and holds up in a way that I wasn't expecting. I thought I would like it, but I didn't think it would be something that like stuck with me. Like I still think about it um, and I will like make references to it and things. And it's not every game will do that for me. So uh, I think that'll wrap mm-hmm. up my Ferelden thoughts. And I also, I too am also pretty excited for Dragon Age 4 and hope that EA does not fuck it up. <laughs> and so, thank you for listening to No Clip this week. Andy? Yes? What are you going to be talking about next time? Next time, we're going to be kicking off Mystery May with. Hell yes! Heavy Rain. A David Ooh. Cage game. Jason! 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 Press, S, press X to Jason, everybody, because it is heavy rain time. Uh, <laughs> so the heavy rain is kind of like in that vein of narrative adventure game, like a Don't Nod or a Telltale kind of style game. But it's made by this guy named David Cage, who writes and directs them. And he's like a weird auteur, so they're kind of like an outlier. Some people love his games other people hate them so it should be a really interesting discussion until that time if you'd like to get a hold of us all of our contact information is on noclippodcast.com there you can find our email our twitter uh and if it strikes your fancy you could even join our discord uh and uh i can't think of any good things to do to the like button (laughs) Uh. romance that like button Romance the like button. Give a gift to the like button. Give Sten a cookie. (laughs) Enchant that like button. We didn't even talk about the enchantments guy. Enchantments? (laughs) Enchantments! Sandal and Bodan. That sure is their names that I didn't remember. (laughs) (laughs) How How could you forget Sandal? Sandal who appears covered in blood. In a room full of dead dark spawn. Channy Tatum is like trying his best, but is in is a dog man who has uh like hover boots. <laughs> <laughs>